You're listening to an episode of Voices of 100%, a new multi-part series from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's Local Energy Rules podcast, where we're speaking with local leaders from across the country to understand their reasons for pursuing a 100% renewable energy goal, how their city plans to achieve that goal, and what these visionaries see as the future of local renewable energy. This week, our host John Farrell talks with Alan Ippolito at Fairday, a tax-exempt nonprofit in the Cully neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, about a powerful initiative on the city's November 6th ballot to guide Portland toward meeting its 100% renewable energy commitment. Alan, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the details of the ballot initiative, one of the things I was curious to start with was just what what relationship does this ballot initiative have to last year's commitment by the city and the county to get to 100% renewable energy? That's a great question, and I'm, I'm happy to provide some background uh, there. So as you mentioned, both Multnomah County and the city of Portland in 2017 advanced tandem 100% renewables resolutions. And Verde, along with a number of other frontline community serving organizations like the Coalition of Communities of Color, Opal Environmental Justice Oregon, uh, as well as a number of mainstream environmental organizations were able to access those processes and really move the ball forward on the commitments the two resolutions made to meeting the needs, addressing the priorities of low-income people and people of color Um, And we call them frontline communities because, as your readers know well, uh, low-income people and people of color are on the front lines of climate change in the United States and around the world. And there were really three commitments that we moved forward in the resolutions. The first was working with uh, ratepayer advocates to protect low-income ratepayers from price impacts during these transitions. The second was advancing workforce and contracting diversity goals so that workers and businesses from all communities have the opportunity to participate in the development and construction of our renewable energy infrastructure. Uh, But then there was a third commitment that we think is especially connected to the Portland Clean Energy Initiative. As I mentioned, we did some pretty good work on advancing workforce and contracting equity commitments in the resolutions. Um, But a lot of these projects that will be done will be very big scale projects. They'll be done by big contractors, big companies, working at big institutions. And there's a lot of reasons uh, why that makes sense. But that's a difficult level for frontline communities to compete. And so we wanted to open up a new playing field uh, for low-income people and people of color and their community-serving institutions to be a part of our transition to 100% renewables. And we call that community-based renewable energy infrastructure. And so each resolution recognizes that that's a model that to ensure that the benefits of our transition are made available to low-income people and people of color communities. Uh, And then each sets standards for what percentage of community-wide energy will come from community-based renewable energy infrastructure. Each of them says that by 2035, 
2% of all the energy uh, in the city of Portland. So not just things that are owned by the city outright or city buildings, but every uh, unit of energy that's consumed within the city, the 2% of all of that will come from this kind of infrastructure. And then the city goes even further and says by 2050, 10%. So one out of every 10 units of energy in the city uh, will be created by community-based renewable energy infrastructure. This is a massive transfer of generative capacity to the community level. And the Portland Clean Energy Initiative is really one of our first efforts to increase the toolkit, both in terms of funding as well as policy, uh, to give communities the opportunity to respond to that challenge. So one thing I think a lot of people ask when we talk about climate regulation or renewable energy is, why do we do this at the city level? You know, uh, California's done a lot of stuff at the state level. I believe there's a ballot initiative in Washington uh, on climate at the state level. Uh, you know, obviously there are some roles that the federal government can play, although I think it's probably don't need to answer that question for the federal level. Why is it important to tackle this at the city level? Well, I don't think it's an either or question. Climate change and poverty are gigantic issues and can't be addressed simply at one level of government and not at others. And indeed, communities, particularly the communities that we're talking about, low-income people, people of color, people of, who are have been excluded from our transition to a sustainable economy, um, certainly we want to organize, certainly we want to build power at the state level, certainly we want to organize, certainly we want to build power at the federal level, but we also have limits to our capacity and the areas, the most immediate level where we can focus is our own neighborhoods and the own government, our own governments uh, in the cities and towns and counties where we operate. So my response would be it's not either or, and we need to recognize that local communities have capacity challenges to engage at these broader scale. Uh, we'll be there one day, and this is part of a broader strategy to build power. But also, we understand our communities best at the local level and can design responsive solutions at that level. And I think you've kind of alluded to this already. So I, I'm going to read a quote from a story about the ballot initiative. It says that it's raising funds for, quote, solar panels and other projects aimed at addressing climate change with the promise the resources will be targeted to low-income and minority communities. And you've already alluded a little bit to why that's important. You know, and also, I think how that differs a lot from some of the efforts that we're seeing in other communities where they are looking more generally at simply how do we reach this numerical target. Um, could you talk a little bit more about why we need that specific focus in the ballot language, in the policies that we pass, and what the benefits are that we reap from that? Sure. I would say a few things. One, there, there's clearly the moral issue. Sustainability is based on these three pillars of uh, environment, economy, and equity. And we've done, to varying degrees, good jobs-ish on the environment and the economy side. But we've left the communities, particularly our more vulnerable communities, behind. And as we know, these communities experience the worst and the most immediate impacts of climate change, whether that's storms, floods, fires, heat waves, um, lost economic opportunity from climate events, health, you name it, across the board. So that's one. But what I think that 
100% renewable advocates, energy transition advocates uh, fail to recognize often is that the demographics of our country and our cities are changing. And the 20th century model of moving environmental policy isn't going to work anymore because we just don't have the numbers. And I say this as someone who's worked on protecting the environment and serving community my whole uh, adult life, we don't have the numbers. Uh, we can't get, couldn't get climate legislation through a Democratic House and Senate and a Democratic president under the Obama administration. And so if we don't bring new communities to the table and don't serve those communities, one, we won't win the policy battles. Um, and second, we'll be leaving a whole segment of the marketplace unserved and therefore leaving out all of the greenhouse gas emission reduction and renewable energy growth that could take place in those excluded communities. Yeah, that's a, a powerful story for the difference. <laughs> so it's three things, right? There's moral, right? We're all humans. It's one planet. We're all here. We can't leave other humans behind as we build little green utopias for people who can afford it. Second, we, the demographics are changing, and we don't have the numbers to win political and policy battles with our old model. And third, the climate gains to be had from serving a shrinking demographic why would we prioritize that? Now, one other thing I thought was really compelling and powerful about this ballot initiative was there are other cities that have done similar things. So essentially, you know, levy attacks in order to uh, do more work around climate. And Boulder, Colorado, most famously did this about a decade ago with the, the country's first locally levied climate tax. And Minneapolis, Minnesota has done something more recently where it's been essentially an, an additional fee on electricity and gas users uh, broadly across the city uh, to add like two to three million dollars a year for a city with a population of about a half million. What I found amazing about this initiative for Portland was two pieces to it. One was the deliberate focus on a particular part of the population and, and in the shape of the uh, uh, of how the revenue is raised. And another one is the magnitude. I just, I'll start with the, the, the magnitude first that, you know, this is intended to raise like $30 million a year. That's something like 10 times more than what these other cities have been pouring into climate work. So I just wanted to note, first of all, the scale is impressive. And the second one is, could you tell me a little bit more about why, the, you know, the ballot measure is funded by a 1% tax on local gross receipts of retailers with national sales over a billion if they do at least a half million in sales in Portland. So you're talking about big retailers that you're targeting. Why did you pick that as part of the initiative? What's the strategy there? Um, and and you know, what are the implications then in terms of uh, your political battle to get this initiative passed come November 6th? Sure. Well, I would say uh, a few things. First, uh, retailers have, from a climate perspective, have very long supply chains. Those supply chains have greenhouse gas emission impacts, um, and they're not accounted for. Second, uh, retailers need to be physically in place to sell their goods and services to people. And so uh, trying to evade uh, what's often a, a made-up argument of, well, if this passes, we're going to leave, Right. Um, and thirdly, uh, Oregon uh, is actually a very business-friendly 
place, seven out of uh, every 10 tax dollar in Oregon comes from individual taxes, not from corporate, uh, corporate revenue. So they have the resources to contribute to pay their share in what is clearly a society-wide, civilization-wide challenge. Uh, And then, of course, uh, in addition to that favorable treatment, they just received a 40%, roughly 40% tax cut uh, from the federal government and the Trump administration. So they have the resources available to lean into this solution with us. And we're not asking for a lot, 1%. Uh, on their general revenues within the city of Portland um, for if it's, if that company has a $500,000 in uh, local revenues, in addition, of course, to meeting the $1 billion national uh, box, they have to check as well. That's $5,000 on that 500,000. So we're not, it's a very targeted, uh, very narrow, and devoted to very specific purposes from companies that can afford it and that have climate impacts. I wonder um, about what the reception has been like. And I'm thinking about, in particular, another recent ballot initiative or effort to tax big companies in Seattle, where they were saying, you know, we have this desire to help uh, the homeless population. We're going to put a small tax on big companies in Seattle and, you know, Amazon is at a, just a gigantic president or presence, excuse me, in Seattle. And they managed to quash this. And I'm curious, do you have other either similar big uh, businesses that are presenting a problem or, you know, other political opponents that have made this particularly challenging? Sure. So I would say a few things first, um, I have to state that the, the official ballot language calls it a surcharge. And so I'm going to call it a surcharge. Uh, second, I think there's a distinguish, there's some distinguishing factors between what happened in Seattle and what's happening here in Portland, as I understand it. First and primarily, uh, the Seattle uh, effort was led by the city, led by the city council. Uh, and in our case, this is community-led. Uh, this idea, the initiative, the organizing around it is by and of frontline community serving organizations in alignment with mainstream environmental groups. So again, groups that serve the Latinx community, the Asian Pacific Islander community, the native community, African-American community, immigrant communities, together with uh, familiar environmental partners like your Audubon Society, your Sierra Club, your 350 PDX, Columbia Riverkeeper, Physicians for Social Responsibility. So the genesis, the origin of the idea and how it's been brought before voters, brought before the public is very different. Uh, I would also say that be in part because of where we came from and how we built this and because, frankly, there's a great hunger, I think, in our communities for climate solutions that also address poverty and meet the growing income disparities that we see in our communities. We've seen tremendous support all the way across the board from other mainstream environmental organizations, from labor, and that's both service unions, public employee unions, and building trades, uh, housing organizations, so groups that advocate or provide affordable housing, advocates for the homeless, faith communities, neighborhood associations, all the way across the board. We submitted 307 
uh, endorsement statements to the uh, voters pamphlet, not the voters pamphlet deadline on September 10th. Uh, that's the most that they've ever received before. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have opposition. We do. Uh, our primary opposition is a what I would call an uh, AstroTurf group uh, or uh, a front group called Keep Portland Affordable. Uh, and they are associated with the Portland Business Alliance, which is kind of like our Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and they've begun to receive contributions. We've just entered into the seven-day reporting period where campaigns have to report contributions within seven days. Um, and we're starting to see donations from groups like Amazon, U.S. Bank, Walmart, Comcast. So the opposition is showing up, and they're going to come after us, uh, particularly, uh, we think, in large media buys. Their, their ground game is not the same as ours, of course, because we're community-based. Um, so we can't beat them at their game, but we can beat them at our game, which is community-based, grassroots, networks. And so for your listeners uh, who want to find out more and want to support us, they can certainly go to our website, portlandcleanenergyinitiative.com. Uh, but also it's important that they follow us on their social media of choice, whether they're Instagram folks or Facebook people or Twitter, uh, to, to follow us, to retweet or to post to their friends and followers that they're following us, because that's how we're going to amplify and get our message out um, as we compete uh, for voters' attention moving towards November 6th. So it sounds like, you know, in, in a way, as we sometimes call them here, the usual suspects are aligning against us, which is to say the big national companies for whom they have a sort of a limited investment and interest in Portland as an, a unique community and rather as just one other place that they have a subsidiary or a chain. Um, I'm curious about some of the incumbent large businesses, and I'm thinking about the utility companies, whether it's a gas utility or an electric utility. I know there's been some discussion and contention with them about how far they're going around renewable energy. I think I read something about the electric company saying, oh, we're going to close a coal plant, but then we want to build a gas plant. Are they much involved in this? And has there been a lot of work related to this initiative or to your work on the 100% renewables with regard to the utility companies? And, and, and where are they positioned? So it, it's important to emphasize that um, in the initiative content, right, as you mentioned, uh, the surcharge covers large retailers. And the first threshold criteria, as you shared, is that they have to have over a billion uh, in national revenues, as well as uh, 500,000, at least 500,000 in local revenues in the city of Portland. And then through two different mechanisms, we exempt something. So on one hand, we exempt sales of groceries, uh, which we use the snapper or food stamp definition for what's a grocery, groceries, medicines, and health services. So uh, a potentially covered entity would deduct sales of those items from its general revenues before uh, any surcharge would be calculated, right? And then we exempt outright uh, for uh, various reasons, co-ops, credit unions, manufacturers and utilities. Uh, so utilities are not covered by the initiative and uh, have remained neutral 
to date in uh, the initiative. You're listening to an interview with Alan Ippolito from Portland, Oregon, as part of our Voices of 100% podcast series. Do you know of any folks we should interview about 100% renewable energy commitments in their community? If so, send us an email at voicesof100 at ilsr.org. That's voicesof100 at ilsr.org. Stay tuned for the rest of this episode after a short message from our Energy Democracy Initiative Director, John Farrell. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. One other way I wanted to look at this was that in in other cities that have had 100% commitments, like Georgetown, Texas, or Pueblo, Colorado, they have talked about the cost of reaching this 100% goal, but they've largely focused that on the price to purchase electricity, which has been usually the first energy source people are talking about. Yeah, how is this initiative different? It, it, I don't really see a lot about the cost of energy in this conversation. What I see a lot about is where the money's going to be invested. And if you could speak to that a little bit, I think that would be helpful for people understanding the work that you're doing. Yeah, can you, can you unpack that a little bit for me? Because I'm, I'm, I think I know what you're asking, but I'm not quite sure. So could you restate it maybe a little bit? Yeah. So in Georgetown, Texas, where they have a municipal electric utility, for example, they made this switch to renewable energy because it was actually cheaper than buying power from fossil fuel sources. Uh, Where in in turn, Pueblo, Colorado, they haven't reached their 100% goal. They've just set it recently, but they have a lot, a, a fairly high portion of low and moderate income residents in their community. They're very concerned about the cost of energy. Uh, a natural gas plant, for example, was built there fairly recently by the utility company and has raised rates and made energy relatively expensive. So they're very concerned about how do we keep energy affordable on the consumer side of things. And what I've heard in what you're talking about a little bit and want to just tease this out a bit is I don't hear you so much saying we're going to focus on affordability uh, as the consumer, but we're looking at how do we as we push toward 100% renewables, share the wealth, essentially, of the investments we're going to make to reach this goal. Is that, am I capturing that accurately? I think on, if, if you're looking at the narrow sense of the Portland Clean Energy Initiative, I would say that's generally true, although we have a great focus on reducing the energy expenses of low-income people uh, for example, in the Cully neighborhood where Verde is located, as you mentioned, 
Uh, we have six mobile home parks in the Cully neighborhood. Roughly 10% of all of the residents in Cully live in those six mobile home parks. And we, together with groups like St. Charles Church, uh, St. Vincent de Paul, do a lot of organizing um, and service work in those mobile home parks. And we're finding folks there paying 200 a month in, to heat their homes in the winter. So we are very conscious of wanting to reduce expenses for low-income households because especially for low-income, the very lowest-income people, even a $20, $30, $40 savings a month to say nothing of how, how much you could reduce a $200 a month heating bill makes a tremendous difference uh, in their lives. So narrowly within the context of the Portland Clean Energy Initiative, I would say we're mostly concerned about prices uh, to those who are carrying high energy burdens. Writ large, in the broader 100% renewable, we are concerned with the costs that low-income ratepayers are paying and did work very diligently with uh, the CAP agencies, the advocates for low-income ratepayers, for low-income weatherization programs, to insert those commitments to hold low-income ratepayers harmless uh, in this transition. So I would say those concerns are there. Uh, and they just have a different level of focus depending on the scale uh, that we're at. Mm -hmm. Alan, I wanted to make sure that I, uh, in my haste to uh, have time to set up this interview, that I didn't miss a chance to ask you a question that you wanted to be able to answer about this. Is there anything else that we should know uh, about this initiative uh, that would be helpful for folks who are doing this work in other places? Well, thank you. That's that's a, a generous offer. I would say that what we're doing here can happen anywhere, and it can happen in any energy or climate or environmental policy or practice uh, or initiative. And that is when you begin by centering low-income people and people of color, when you begin by centering the growing, changing demographics in our cities and in our country, you're starting from uh, a base that helps ensure the level of political support you're going to need to be successful and accountability to broader societal needs and challenges, right? When we segregate or isolate our environmental solutions, from our other social issues like housing, poverty, health, we're operating in a silo, we're operating in a vacuum, and it becomes something that those people are working on over there, but it doesn't make a difference in my life. But when we integrate uh, into broader concerns and we center the frontline communities, our chances for success and for responsive solutions grows tremendously and and i would urge folks to check out the literature check out the polling because poll after poll whether it's state polls in california national polls or even polls that the portland business alliance did here in the city of portland show that communities of color support environmental regulations and policies at higher levels than the general population, including their willingness to see government pay for those policies and solutions. So this is the future. 
get on board. I love it. Um, my last question for you, Alan, is just in terms of, and, and I sort of had generically written this down as your advice to others. Although I think you, you have just given a very useful piece of advice, maybe just a more targeted piece of advice that you could offer to, as you mentioned, those traditional mainstream environmental groups who are doing climate work, who have thought for a long time about passing this or that state policy or working at the federal level. What's the first thing that they can do in their work to start, as you said, centering low-income folks and people of color? You know, does it start with a phone call, with an email? What is it that's really going to get them to start turning and thinking about how I get out of this silo? Wow, that's that's a great and very deep. That's a really deep question. Um, there's no shortcut, and but that's fine because I would say most uh, environmental organizations, as well as civil rights and social justice organizations, understand and appreciate the need to commit to long-term work to achieve change. And I would say that environmentalists do need to be conscious of their political power, their access, their privilege. Um, and so, for example, they have relationships with elected officials, policymakers, funders that can be brought to bear to meet the needs and serve low-income and people of color communities. And so what we always say is the best thing is for uh, a mainstream environmental organization to do the hard work of building relationships with organizations on the ground serving communities of color. And that relationship might bear very little in what you would consider, you know, uh, externally measurable uh, fruit, right? It's not going to be something you can put an output in your grant chart, right, that you, you know, your grant flow chart that you have to turn into your funder. It's the slow organic work of saying, hey, this is who we are in a sort of a perspective of deference and um, respect that we always encourage uh, organizations to reach out to a frontline community serving organization, right? And we're in every city doing important work every day and say, hey, I'm, I work for this group. Um, we have some, we're good at some things. Like we know a lot about, I don't know, air quality, water quality, energy policy. We've got good relationships with these elected officials or uh, this agency or these funders. But we really want to be of service to your community. And so I'm here wanting to start a relationship with you. Uh, in hopes that over time we can figure out a way that the work that I can I do in my organization can be of service to the work that you do in your organization. And I understand it's going to take time and trust. And I'm sure I know lots of people come through that door and say, hey, I'm from so-and-so and I'm here to help. Uh, and I just want to make a commitment and ask for the opportunity to prove that we're serious about helping. And then see what happens. Alan, uh, you mentioned the term privilege in this last part of our conversation. I just want to say it has been my privilege to talk to you about this work. 
so that's very kind of you. And uh, <laughs> very nice. Of you. I wish you the best of luck on November sixth, and I will be sharing about your work on social media from afar here in Minneapolis, uh, and we'll uh, encourage other folks to do the same uh, about how we can be successful at a local level and uh, bring climate justice to everyone. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. And we look forward to uh, everyone's support um, for Portland Clean Energy Initiative. Terrific. Thanks again, Alan. Take care. Thank you. Bye now. This has been the fifth episode of our special series, Voices of 100% from Local Energy Rules, about a powerful initiative on the city's November 6th ballot to guide Portland toward meeting its 100% renewable energy commitment. For more information on cities that have committed to 100% renewable energy, check out the other episodes in this series and explore ILSR's interactive community power map, which is available at ILSR.org. While you're on our website, you can also find more than 50 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. Tune back into the program in three weeks for our next episode in this series, where we'll be featuring Abita Springs, Louisiana, and hearing about their promise to transform the city's local energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.